You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. I am Oliver Tonby, Chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Hello and welcome to another episode of Future of Asia podcast. After four decades of opening up its economy, China is facing their first set of challenges with their relationship to the world. Could we be seeing the beginning of a new trend of less engagement between China and the world after years of deepening ties? In this episode, adapted from our friends at McKinsey on China podcast, Nick Liang addresses this question with Jonathan Wetzel and Gordon Orr. Jonathan is the director of the McKinsey Global Institute, which has published a new report that looks at China integration with the rest of the world. Gordon is Chairman Emeritus of McKinsey Asia and is currently a senior advisor to the firm. And Nick Leung is the Chairman of McKinsey Greater China. So to kick us off, Jonathan, why don't you start by explaining a little bit what is this piece of research and um, you know how is it undertaken, just to give people a sense of what, what what's there. Sure, Nick. Uh, well, it's uh, it was something we started actually, I think now almost 12 to 18 months ago. And uh, the intent was to put numbers around the level of integration uh, or non uh, between China and the rest of the world. Uh, in multiple dimensions. And uh, we're looking at simply putting facts on the table around uh, trade and technology and culture and data and many other aspects of the relationship, simply to take a reading, if you will, on, on how how integrated or not uh, are we today? And yes, what the trend has been, where, how, do, how did we get to where we are? Uh, so it's all publicly sourced data, um, and it's all available data, as is any MGI report. And uh, it's all, of course, very topical right now. Jonathan, you mentioned these um, dimensions, and perhaps it's useful just to outline what they are. So they are trade, companies, capital, people, technology, data, culture, and environmental impact. So those are the eight. And Gordon, when we look at the in the report is whether or not we're skewed in terms of you know, balanced or skewed across each of these dimensions compared to each other. And also whether there is in the relationship and in the dependency within each of these, um, you know, whether they're lopsided, either in terms of a dependency in one or the other direction. It's a great, it's a great set of dimensions. But I think the two that strike you immediately, and, you know, as you travel the world, you say, well, China's goods go everywhere. China's the factory of the world. It's whatever, 35, 40% of global manufacturing. And wherever you go, whatever kind of you know, consumer you are, you're buying Chinese manufactured goods. And then the second is, wherever you go, you say, wow, aren't there an incredible amount of Chinese tourists in whether it's London or Venice or Bangkok I mean, I think if I read, remember from the report correctly, it's saying, you know, close to 10% of uh, Thailand's consumer consumption is represented by visitors from China at this point, which is truly mind boggling as an impact on, right. on the economy. So you economy. get the impression that China is kind of, um, you know, punching above its weight in terms of its integration of the rest of the world along these two dimensions. But of course, then you need to look at companies, you look at capital, you look at technology, data, culture, etc., and you get a different picture. 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'd say it's above its weight. It's just... It's weight. It's weight. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of people in China that have the income and interest to travel internationally. Um, and um, so, but yes, I think on many of the other dimensions, whether it's the internationalization of China's leading businesses, um, take, take that as an example where you've got, you know, 100 plus Chinese companies in the Fortune 500, but their share of international revenue compared to their U.S. peers is only one half. Um, if you look at um, technology, you know, 90 plus percent of the technology standards that China uses today come from the rest of the world. China's a taker, not a giver. Um, and as you know, I've talked about many times, you know, Ch- China's internet and, da- and data in on the internet is very much generated in China, for China. Not a lot of that goes out, but there's a tremendous amount that gets pulled in, despite you know what people might think about you know barriers and uh, right. To, to so doing essentially, that. the first skewing here is across the the eight dimensions, yeah. And how um, China's integration with the rest of the world is very, very mixed. If you look across those eight uh, categories, you've mentioned a couple where we feel there's much less integration uh, than you would expect or we would expect perhaps in the future. What are other ones? Jonathan, do you want to talk a little bit about, for example, um, capital or, or culture? Culture is a really interesting one too, right? Culture is, uh, is yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, China has been uh, uh, trying, and I think Gordon's written on this, uh, to build a, a movie industry for decades, um, but uh, to, with, with notable lack of success, I mean, compared to South Korea or, you know, let alone uh, Hollywood. And so, yeah, I mean, China clearly hasn't uh, been successful at creating a product that can go outside of its own borders there, relatively speaking. Uh, money is an interesting one as well. So there, China has, you know, in many dimensions, one of the world's largest markets, but it's, uh, whether it's for debt or uh, in the equity markets. And, and and of course, it doesn't really have a lot of foreign participation there. I mean, uh, overall, we think the financial assets that are held by foreigners of, 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 as, as a share of the total Chinese system is less than six or seven percent. It's a relatively small number. Uh, so, I mean, there there are parts of the Chinese economy uh, or society which are pretty autarkic. You know, essentially they've they've, they've been running on their own. Uh, and uh, you see that, you know, from a Chinese person in the street perspective, you know, there, there are some things which that person would say, well, this is Chinese, clearly. And there are other parts of the economy or the side would say, well, OK, this is where the foreigners play. Uh, and so it's it's very skewed, as you say, from any you know per individual's perspective of where is there a domestic versus a f- open to foreign kind of aspect, part of the part of the economy and society. The logical implication of that, if we look at this and we say, actually, China is kind of, kind of at its weight only in a couple of the eight dimensions and that great efforts have been made also to, to globalize in some and great efforts have been made to not globalize in others. For example, you know, not opening up China to foreign services, right? Or, um, great efforts to prevent Chinese investment in equity bases outside of China, which is why we only have 6%. Chinese, um, 6% of ownership of the capital base within China compared to whatever it is, 20 something in the US, or if you look at some European countries like the UK, almost 50%. And so looking ahead, and here it comes the interesting other skewing here. If you look at the, the exposure China has to the rest of the world versus the exposure the rest of the world has to China, what, what does the report say about that, Jonathan? 
Well, I mean, we start to see a trend, of course, a divergence, if you will, that, I mean, we start, back in the day, of course, the world became very important to China. And sort of there was a, a pretty big influx of uh, multinational influence on the company side, um, technology, of course, uh, and culture. I mean, Hollywood's done fine in, uh, in China. Um, and that was the, so there was a rising level of uh, foreign engagement in China. But in the last decade, it's clearly been going in the other direction. And uh, as the China has simply become more Chinese, and that's a reflection of trade trends in terms of the growth of the domestic market uh, relative to exports from China. So that in the back in the day, China used to export 55% of its, uh, if its ICT production or its computer production. Today, it only exports 30% of that, re- reflecting primarily the uh, the growth of the domestic market because the the base of course is much bigger uh, and and uh, and so there's so there is the rise of the domestic market there's also the deepening of the Chinese owned supply chain and its cap- capability so it doesn't have to import uh, as much as it did before it still does of course but not as much uh, and so all of that means that for China becoming more Chinese is essentially to say that at one at the same time as because China is much bigger the rest of the world is more aware of it and sees it, whether it's busloads of tourists or uh, or bigger Chinese uh, companies um, in terms of the marquee. Uh, but at the same time as that's happening outside of China, inside of China, the trend is the other way, the, that China is becoming less, if you will, integrated into the world and it's becoming much yeah, more this Chinese. Is a, this is a fascinating thing because if you look at, I mean, the, the way you've, you, we, we've um illustrated in the report essentially is if you look at the interdependency of the top seven economies in the world and you you essentially benchmark that at one right but the highest point china ever got in terms of its dependency on the rest of the world is something like 0.8 right and it kind of goes up in the early 2000s and essentially in the last decade it's been it's been reducing right i think gordon and I think you have a theory on that. it's fundamentally driven by you know chinese the growth of the chinese consumer you know they're been 60% of China's GDP growth for the last seven or eight years. There's, you know, I think they're a third of global consumer consumption growth. Uh, and that just pulls Chinese companies to focus on the market that's, that's closer to hand. Plus, it pulls multinational companies to, to equal, also focus which on is, again, where the growth one is. Way, pulling so, in which which is going to increase their dependency on on china and reduces the chinese company's dependency on 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 the rest of the world so in many ways you could argue this is the 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 trend is actually a successful outcome of what the world wanted and what china's economy wanted to have a more domestically driven consumption driven economy driven economy the consumption driven economy of over a billion people has been the biggest story of the last decade well, or decade and a half. Yeah. And to, essentially that's to been... state the bleeding obvious consumption no. of a billion point three people is going to be larger than the consumption of a 300 million. But interestingly, as you said earlier, what dri- what has driven the rest of the world's imp- uh, impression of Chinese globalization is was the 15 years before that, which was the factory of the world when chi- before China had a thriving yeah. consumer economy, when it had a manufacturing base. That's when the impact is felt everywhere else. Now the impact is kind of second order. The fact that we're trailing off from over these last 10 years, I think now we're at 0.6 of that index. Well, it's partly because you've got that manufacturing base in China that's now able to to continue to grow by supplying in China China, rather than the rest of the world. And if you take the, the other line there, which is the world's exposure to China, right? And there we've, we've experienced the opposite trend. So we went from 0.4 
at the time when we were 0.8. So yeah. a, a situation where China was very dependent on the rest of the world, but the world didn't really have that much dependency. And that's essentially now reached something above the weighted average of the seven economies at 1.2. So we've had the opposite trend. The world now depends more on China than the than than China depends on it. Well, take our friends in Australia as potentially the easiest to describe example, whether it's, you know, in basic materials, whether it's in agricultural output, whether it's in uh, education uh, and tourism. Same driver, though, Chinese consumer. Chinese consumer is all of those. It's all of those things, right. And just to be clear, on those, we aren't talking at all eight dimensions. We're talking about trade, technology, and capital. Is that right, Jonathan? Uh, Trade, uh, technology, capital, um, people. I mean, I, I think it's, again, as we noted, we've mentioned tourists a few. It's also worth noting students. I mean, Chinese students are, I know, everywhere. So they're the largest share of global student population you know, by, by quite a long way. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are the ones where we would see, you know, the rest of the world seeing, wow, China, wow, important. And uh, underlying that, yeah, I agree, sort of the rise of the Chinese consumer um, as being the primary rationale. If I could just add on the student point for a second, I think it's going to be very interesting over the next couple of years to see what happens as a result of the U.S. making it more difficult for Chinese students to get visas to go to the U.S. Will those students find other countries to go to? Or is the U.K. and Australia already at saturation point? Can, can they actually take any more? Or will those students actually end up staying back in China and to the theme that we're talking about, thereby further reducing China's dependence on the rest of the world. And that all and that also points towards the other thing which we highlight in the report, which is that actually if you look at the level of integration, it depends on things like, for example, trade and services. So tr- in trade terms, of course, China's connectivity with the rest of the world is very high. However, in services, it's very, very limited, right? So if you look at sectors like healthcare, if you look at education, et cetera, in China, those are still very close to outside players, right? And you have this kind of irony that, you know, education players aren't allowed into China. On the other hand, China's exporting tremendous amounts of students to receive their education outside of China, right? So clearly, we're, we're, we're the skewing of this globalization pattern towards certain areas which are more globalized than others also creates these kinds of uh, these kinds of uh, contrasts. I, I think I also think it highlights the uh, the, the what's the potential here in the sense that you think that China is integrated. But one of the things that come across is that it's not just the skew, but it's just relatively speaking, not quite so much yet. And there are many aspects of uh, potential integration which haven't actually been seen, whether it's parts of the economy or it's segments of the consumer uh, or it's technolo- types of technology. There's, there's plenty of places where China simply doesn't either you know, uh, benefit from the global sort of integration or the world hasn't yet seen the full impact of, uh, of the Chinese consumer. Uh, and so watch the space. I mean, the, or at least that's the market dynamics is to push for more of that. Right. And so, th- so, the, so the key question, I mean, the, key, the key initial finding here is actually we haven't seen very much integration as yet. And we would anticipate if you look at the best economic outcomes anyway, that we, we, we should have much more. Well, I think we can put a number against it, but I think these are very, we we basically do believe from MGI that the being, if you will, in the flow and that being more exposed to the flow of goods, of services, of data, of capital, of people generally leads you to a faster uh, rate of economic growth. It also leads you to more change. 
And I think, uh, you know, people are obviously reacting around the world today to what we've called before no ordinary disruption. <laughs> so, you know, that be careful what you wish for, you may get it. I think just to reinforce what Jonathan's saying, this sort of the, you know, China's been on a on a 30-year journey of change and opening up, whereby most of the changes that have made have been incremental in nature. Uh, and I think the report calls out very strongly that continuing to pursue further incremental liberalization reform, opening up, whether it's, you know, things like opening up the financial sector uh, further, making it easier for foreign companies to invest in additional sectors or the e-commerce law to, to trade um, and um, things like that, you know, that it's incredibly important that China continues on that on that journey. Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. So economically, clearly, there's there's a lot of additional upside if integration were to continue, right? And I think you've um, you've identified five specific areas in the report where there's a tremendous value at stake, both on the upside in most cases, and then in some particular cases, also a certain amount of downside if we were to see uh, decoupling and, and deglobalization uh, trends to to take hold. Um, do you want to cover those, Jonathan, quickly in terms of which areas um, are most dramatic? It comes to, I mean, I think I'd phrase it in terms of the percentage of global GDP that's at risk. So, you know, we think out by the, the you know, 15 years from now, the level of integration that China has pro or con into the rest of the world is worth, you know, give or take 20% of global GDP. So a big enough number to matter. And that comes out of a couple of really important things. There's a there's a sort of a notion that first of all, China you know has to be more. In, if China is more open to foreign competition in its domestic markets, particularly in services, um, that will spur productivity growth in China, which will create a massive demand and in turn a great you know opportunity for investment for the world. So that's a really big one. Uh, it, it, very short term, in Chinese imports. I mean, if China, you know, does in a sense in, uh, allow its uh, consumers to get access to uh, the products from for, certainly from developing countries and sort of uh, lower value added but lower cost, uh, you know, imports to China, that will have a tremendous impact uh, on those countries. But also, of course, it'll benefit the Chinese consumer. So there's all this trade related opportunity. But you know, even more important for the future is the technical productivity, if you will, the technology opportunity. And that's one where because China is such a big market and because it's just such a big uh, opportunity for technology development, in many cases, you will find that some technologies that don't get access to the Chinese marketplace simply won't happen. Uh, so the rate of technological productivity uh, of the world uh, will slow if China simply doesn't integrate and continue to integrate its technological capabilities worldwide. And that's that's whether we're talking about environmental or uh, AI or uh, you know even you know material science. Those are all sort of big opportunities for the world, but also of course for for from a China perspective, important for their own growth. And the final category I think um, is uh, capital. 
in the sense China's been essentially running a very autarkic financial system, completely separate from the other world. That has an implication for the Chinese saver and the Chinese investor, which is very volatile. And so there's a plenty of you know, bubbles in the Chinese economy. And the notion being that if China does integrate its capital markets globally, this will create more options for the Chinese investor and saver. will also give the rest of the world an opportunity to, to participate more directly uh, in the Chinese uh, investment story, all of which should you know, be a good thing for, for global pools of capital. Yeah. And if you focus on just those, essentially, you see a very simple pattern, which is clearly on services and financial, China is much less integrated. And therefore, your scenarios illustrate a lot more upside than, than, than downside to, to that, which essentially means you know, that would be globalization continuing at pace and capturing that upside through mainly actually China opening up more. Then you have the areas where there has already been a lot of integration, as, as Gordon also uh, mentioned, trade and technology. And in those areas, of course, there is also a lot of downside, right? Because of the already high level of integration, if you, look, you think about supply chains, you think about global dependency, all those, I think you mentioned, you called them earlier, hostages. So, you know, who are the hostages in this scenario? Well, it is the companies that rely very, very much on Chinese consumer, the Chinese consumer phenomenon one way or another, right? It is the technology companies who have supply chains that go, you know, one way, then the other way, then the other way again before they get to a finished product, right? So there are, there are some very significant downsides there as well in terms of whether we whether we have if we have indeed reached peak integration and we go and we decouple from this point then you know we'll see some real losers in those sectors yeah that's fair i mean i i I'm, I, I think that there is there is a a, a, a negative uh, scenario here and I, I again i feel like we have to be careful what we ask for we might we might well get it um, because there are also, as we've noted in the report, you know the process of globalization has not been a picnic for everybody. There's been plenty of dislocation on both sides. I mean, every time a piece of modern technology comes into China, uh, it forces hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people to change their jobs. So, you know, there's been plenty of dislocation in China, as has and also has been very well documented uh, in in uh, in the United States and and other developed economies. So, more more potentially on the way, and that is the question. Question, sort of like how how do we feel about that, um, and is there you know a clear sort of way of addressing some of that increasingly dislocating kind of disruptive change? Yes, exactly. Because to answer the question, have we reached peak integration? I think what we've described here essentially is how far we are today in terms of that integration, as well as the scenarios that could ensue if we were to further uh, integrate or decouple. And I think what drives the question of whether we reach the peak, of course, is not an economic question, right? And we have here all the economic analysis, but it is essentially a political one or a geopolitical one. And um, that is essentially where we see a lot of the fireworks today. But I think on some of the levers, it's more economically driven than, than geopolitics. I'd argue on on three, the the, the opening further of, of trading opportunities for international companies to engage in China, with the China International Import Expo last year, with the funds that China's setting up with third countries to encourage companies to, 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 to export to China with the e-commerce law and the like. There's really concrete actions there. Um, the liberalization of services is, is clearly happening, again, on an incremental basis, whether it's healthcare, uh, whether it's some of the internet-driven services, um, some, some of the actions on the financial system, I think, um, Chinese government officials would argue quite rightly have been pretty bold this year. But all of this is, is intended, as you say, to the, 
to take place in the context of we know there will be losers in this, but so they're workers generally that used to work on construction sites or used to work in factories that aren't there anymore. And, you know, we've needed the service sector, particularly the internet based service sector to pick up the slack. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's just good to be lucky. You know, Chinese internet players have generated tens of millions of jobs. You know, my friends at Meituan have 3 million people delivering, delivering food to Chinese homes every day. You know, their competition has another 3 million and you can go on and on. That's a lot of factory workers that have found employment that they actually prefer to working in a factory at this point. But I think to what Jonathan, to what Jonathan said, it's essentially, it's that change and the anticipation of that change which is also creating a political backlash in certain countries and therefore the representatives of those countries need to you know, look out for their perceived interests in the future. And that essentially will also drive which scenario we end Which up is in. fundamentally the technology and innovation dimension of all of this, which, which is an overarching pinch point because it can impact whether any of these other sectors can, can pres- or levers can be pulled in the in the way that that, that we would like, um, I don't. I mean, I think we shouldn't overlook the the environmental le- lever in 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 all of this that that, that the report lays out. That um, you know, China is close to half of the world's spending on you know carbon reducing um, innovations uh, and 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 products today. Um, and, you know, that's clearly punching way above its weight. Um, and when, you know, the OECD countries talk about, you know, they're going to go carbon neutral, you know, they're going carbon neutral by having exported, exported the carbon, carbon intensive parts of their supply chain to China. <laughs> um, and, you know, greater integration on that, you know, I mean, self-evidently is a win-win. But I agree with you totally, you know, the, the technology and innovation costs of moving to a world where we have multiple standards for a sector will increase costs, will reduce productivity, will reduce the pace of innovation, um, but is not... It's a geopolitical one. It is, I mean, that's why, actually, if you look at the, 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 the fireworks today, you certainly feel that perhaps in that particular prisoner's dilemma, it's hard to see how we're going to get both sides to, you know, play to the upside. Rahm Emanuel, uh, the mayor, former mayor of Chicago, used to say, it's a shame to waste a good crisis. So <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things that can concentrate our our focus. As Gordon was saying around the environment, just take a look at what's uh, what happened when China decided not to import any more e-waste. Um, it's like all of a sudden garbage starts to pile up in, you know, in, in, in OECD cities. And I think it's forced a recognition like, wow, this was easy for so long to export the problem, quite literally. Now we have to solve it ourselves. Maybe we should try to rethink you know, our entire business model. And that's what you start to see and think in, in the waste sector is sort of rethinking of value chains uh, in both uh, the places where the waste is generated, but also, of course, in China, as they're saying, we're full. You know, we, need to, we need to now solve this. We can't use their old model. So maybe maybe crises, little little crises along the way can be can be helpful. Right. So if we ask ourselves the question again that we started with, which is, have we reached peak integration? Right. What we've outlined here is the patterns of of um, China's relationship with the rest of the world. Where is it more intense? Where is it less intense? Some of the value associated with it moving in one or the other direction. Um and we've touched on the idea that we may have reached a peak, but because the peak essentially depends on two things. Clearly, there's a lot more value, as we've pointed out, in further integration. That is the best outcome for everyone, right? However, 
because there are winners and losers, because there is perceived interests on both sides, um, what is actually also holding this together is interdependence. Right? And unfortunately, if you look at the interdependence, the equation there is changing and is also skewed in the sense that China's dependency on the rest of the world is lower than it was. My frame of the answer on that, Nick, would be to say on China to, China to the rest of the world, we have not reached peak integration. We should not have reached peak integration. There's, there's really opportunities in, in both directions uh, for, for gains, but that we may well have reached peak China-US integration within that. Thank you, Gordon, because I think basically you have put your finger on what could be one of the most important words in our report, and that is the word world. A lot of the fireworks we're talking about here and a lot of the, dis the discussion about trade disputes, et cetera, have been between the U.S. and China, the two largest powers. However, of course, the world is bigger than just the U.S. and China's relationship with it goes beyond that. And all the analyses we have here, of course, are looking at uh, all dimensions across all major economies. Jonathan, maybe that's the answer here, right, in terms of peak globalization. Perhaps we have reached peak integration between China and the U.S., as Gordon suggests, but not with China and the world. Well, I think there's still room to grow uh, on the China-U.S. side, particularly as you think about services and what. But I, I think that is actually what we start to see in the data um, is that uh, China and Asia are integrating much faster. Uh, Intra-Asia trade has been the fastest growing piece of global trade for quite some time now. Uh, and this, so this regionalization, uh, that's what we see in global value chains. And that that is very – from our conversations with corporations around the world, as they think about how to you know, rethink their supply chains and value chains to mix – to manage for this increased level of challenge, uh, disruption, that's what they're go doing. They're saying, okay, maybe we need to build resilience and redundancy into the regional supply chain. Uh, and that's where that's where the growth and integration likely will come from, both in Asia uh, and, for that matter, I think in uh, in, in Europe, in Middle East, Africa, and in the Americas. That you know, essentially, we'll start to see you know parallel supply and value chains emerging in each of these each of these areas. As you say, Jonathan, uh, what companies do that is indeed the key question: um, how they can manage through these uncertainties along the China world dimensions outlined in terms of um, you know, the, the product chains you're mentioning, product positioning, required agility, the balance sheets, etc. And so that is also uh, covered in your report. But just to double back to the original question, so have we reached peak integration? And I think it's probably fair for us to say in the course of this conversation, we are cautiously optimistic that um, we are likely, that the most likely scenario is that we will see further integration uh, and that's driven by a number of things. Firstly, the tremendous amount of value at stake at further, integra for further integration for all parties concerned. The fact that those, the integration that we've looked at essentially is so skewed in, in one and the other direction across the different dimensions and therefore a more balanced uh, integration or a more balanced relationship between China and the world is definitely beneficial to all sides. And then finally, the fact that there is, of course, global but also regional relationships between China and the rest of the world. And we see those by necessity also increasing over time. So I think that's our cautious prediction that we will, we have not reached peak China integration. Um, with respect to companies, of course, it is um, a case of uh, hope for the best, but uh, prepare for various scenarios. Thank you, Gordon. And thank you, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash future of Asia 
or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs>